I love that song. What a great way to set up our passage today. If you're just joining us, we're in week four of a series that we're calling Playlist, where we've been looking at different passages from the Psalms or the Psalter. These songs were the playlist and are the playlist of the people of God. Now, last week we looked at uh, probably the most famous psalm there is, Psalm 23, but today we're going to look at an equally well-known psalm, and that is Psalm 51. This is a psalm of penitence or confession. So fair warning, this is probably going to be a bit of a heavier sermon today. Um, as we look at Psalm 51, I want, I want you to ask this question. When do I need this song on my playlist? I know about the other, I know about the other songs, but when do I need this psalm of confession on my playlist? Because it's, it's in moments of failure or guilt or brokenness, that's when we need this song. It was written after David written by David after he committed a really terrible act of sin with a woman named Bathsheba. And then he comes to God seeking forgiveness. Now, what's interesting, in our, in our day and age, uh, forgiveness has become a bit complicated. And that's because we live in an age of cancel culture. Have you heard this term? Stems all the way back to the 1980s, because back then, canceled was a slang term that meant to break up with somebody. And that concept now has infected all of society. What is cancel culture, you might ask? Well, it can be defined this way. Cancel culture is when a, a person or group decides to stop supporting someone or something based on a transgression that, that is either actual or perceived. I want you to notice that. It's, it's a transgression that's either actual or perceived. In other words, you may, not, you may not have done or meant the thing that you're being accused of, and yet you can still be publicly shamed for it. And in our digital world, this often takes place on social media where the birds start pecking at you. Uh, maybe that's why Elon Musk decided to change Twitter to X, because now you can just X somebody out. Now, if you're paying attention, the tornado of cancel culture, it's just everywhere. In fact, it seems like every day we're hearing about another celebrity whose career is over, another brand who has lost business due to boycotts, or another division in our society that has, that has ruptured because of offensive comments. Cancel culture's in the air. And you might feel the tension at your workplace, or in your school, or with a group of friends. And, and it might feel like this. Life feels like this right here. If you make a statement that's not, that's not accepted as orthodox, you very quickly become that red character in the middle. Because nowadays, there's a cost to saying something true, which, which in a lot of cases is a tragedy. It, it kills conversations and relationships. But here's what I want to know. Why are people drawn to this? How did it become a thing? Now, to be fair, proponents of cancel culture will argue that they're, they're bringing justice and accountability to the forefront. And those are good things, uh, but, but they can be taken to an extreme, because the only way cancel culture could rise was if forgiveness culture diminished. And so people are drawn to cancel culture because we like holding grudges. We like having power over people. We like being able to say, I'm better than that person. I would never do that. And in fact, cancel culture is a form of self-justification, a form of self-salvation. Because we can say, I'm the whistleblower, I saved the day, I am so much better than those people. Our culture is experiencing an absence of forgiveness. Do you feel that tension? Right? In fact, I suspect many of us don't, don't share our struggles, or we don't voice our opinions, or we don't interact with people that are different than us, because we fear that we will quickly become, that again, that red figure in the middle. 
And when there's no culture of forgiveness, we're, we're going to make sure we're going to make sure that we don't mess up. That that we're going to start building walls around ourselves and our hearts so that nobody sees the real me or knows what I actually think. Friends, when the song of forgiveness is not on our playlist, disaster follows. Relational walls are erected, roots of bitterness form in our hearts, and division is pervasive in our society. Does that seem about right? Now, some of you might be saying, well, when did forgiveness become such a loaded and dangerous concept? Well, before he passed away, uh, Tim Cower, one of his last books that he wrote and published was on this very topic. The title was, Forgive, Why, Why Should I and How Can I? And he highlights that in the era of, of Me Too and Black Lives Matter, forgiveness is, culturally speaking, seen as empowering abusers. We shouldn't forgive people. We need to hold them accountable. And again, accountability is a noble goal, but, but is there really no place for restoration? And, and that gets us to Psalm 51, because the background of Psalm 51 is 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11 and 12 in the Old Testament, and it tells the story of King David the most famous king in Israel's history, who stays behind, we're told, in his palace when his armies are going out to fight battles. And while he's behind, he sees this beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing on the top of a rooftop. She's the wife of one of his best soldiers, and sin captures him. He then uses his influence as king to sleep with her, and then he covers the whole thing up, the whole incident up through deceit and through murder, he, allows, he even allows her husband to be killed, and then he takes her as his wife. The story involves multiple sinful acts, and David thinks he gets away with it. And I think people are drawn to that story because we all have an inclination to some kind of sin. But Psalm 51 is, is problematic from a secular standpoint. In fact, people have been revisiting the story of David and Bathsheba and saying David's actions are disturbing. But then again, you get to 2 Samuel 12, where David is confronted by the prophet Nathan over his sin. He comes and says, David, you did this. And, and David, it, it's in the scene, confesses his sin and repents. And Psalm 51 is the fruit of that. It's a heartfelt model of confession and forgiveness. But David's story in today's culture is just complicated. People then argue that David shouldn't receive forgiveness. His words are empty because of his actions. What are we to do with Psalm 51 in the era of cancel culture? Well, I want to argue today that Psalm 51 is just countercultural. It, it turns the ubiquity of cancel culture on its head and shows us forgiveness is possible. It shows us that true repentance and forgiveness have lasting and transformative effects. Psalm 51 ultimately points to the transformative power of the gospel because the price of our sin is high and it costs Jesus his life. And if we really and truly understand that, it produces life change. Tim Cower writes this. He says, Jesus' final sentence means that divine mercy should change our hearts so that we're able to forgive as God forgave us. And if we will not offer others forgiveness, it shows that we did not truly repent and receive God's. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he bore the cost of the penalty of our sin. We deserve to die. We deserve to be punished. But instead, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God against our sin because God hates sin. And if you really and truly get this, if you confess and turn from your sins, that's when true life change can occur. Because God is not in the business of canceling you. He wants to cancel your sin. 
And that's what Psalm 51 is all about. So as we begin this morning, I'd invite you to turn with me there, and I just want to read the psalm to you today in its entirety. Psalm 51, David writes this. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners Will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Verse 18 Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Amen. This is a countercultural psalm. And the question to ask as we look through it today is this. How can I live a truly forgiven life? How can I live a truly forgiven life? For the rest of our time, I want to examine three principles that David models right here in Psalm 51, and they're, they're just simply this. Number one, you have to practice personal reflection. Number two, you have to surrender to divine transformation. And then, and then you can sing in genuine worship. So let's pray as we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we just thank you for your, your, your word. We thank you for the life of David. We thank you for the, the, the way that he just took emotions and was able to put those to words. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your steadfast love, despite anything we've walked through and anything we've done. Lord, we come to the foot of the cross this morning, and we, we beg for your mercy, Lord, knowing that you are a gracious God who offers it um, unconditionally, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. We pray all that in his name. Amen. All right, so first, if you want to live a truly forgiven life, you have to practice personal reflection. And what I mean by that is that, is that we need to learn this discipline of confession. Like David, we need somebody to confront us, like the prophet Nathan, and point out our sins. But then there's ongoing work that needs to happen within our hearts. Uh, Catholic philosopher and apologist G.K. Chesterton famously responded to an editor's question, what's wrong with the world? And he just wrote back, I am. And that's an honest and humbling assessment of his own character and life. But how many of us do that? Or or do we think it's always somebody else's fault? It's always, and and don't, don't raise your hand for this, it's always your spouse's fault. It's always your kid's fault. 
It's always the Democrat or Republican's fault. It's always everybody's fault but your own. And notice, in cancel culture, to some extent, you are God. You decide who has wronged you, and then you bring judgment. And that is just bad theology. In Psalm 51, David echoes the words of Chesterton, or maybe it's the other way around. He begins with himself. In fact, let's, let's revisit verses 1 and 2. He starts out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Again, just an honest assessment. He begins by pleading for God's mercy. David accepts the seriousness of his sins in that incident with Bathsheba. In fact, in that incident, you may not, you may not have noticed this, but David actually broke five of the Ten Commandments. Five. That's like half of them. He coveted his neighbor's wife. He, he, he stole her and committed adultery with her. Then he murdered his loyal servant, and then he lied about it and covered it up. That's, that's some serious stuff that David's bringing into this psalm right here. But he owns it. He confesses it. In fact, the words transgressions and iniquities and sin, they all appear similar, but uh, the use of all of them is meant to convey, convey that his confession is comprehensive and far-reaching. It shows that he has self-knowledge and awareness. David now sees himself as uh, he truly is when Nathan confronts him. And some of us need that today because if you go home today and you start looking in the mirror, I would, I would ask you to consider, do you know who you truly are? So, some of us don't like what we see when we look in the mirror. Some of us know our sin and, and we, we, we don't like what we see because we don't think that God could possibly forgive us. But is that true? Who is the God of the Bible? What does he say about forgiveness? Does he forgive? Because there's a reason David opens this psalm talking about God. When he says, have mercy on me, according to what? He says, your steadfast, your steadfast love. David grounds his confession in God's personal character, not his own. And church, we have to start there. Because when you practice personal reflection, you have to start resting in God's character and not your own. Now, now many of us don't do that. M many of us, when we sin, we don't run to God. We don't run to the cross. In fact, we, we probably run away from God in many cases. Why do we do that? I think we do that in a lot of ways because we don't believe or we don't trust that God will forgive us. We think he's only going to bring condemnation. If you come and you confess, you think God's going to point his finger at you. But that's not who God is. He will certainly tell us the truth. In many cases, he will. He, he has judged our sin on the cross, but his heart is to see sinners come to repentance and trust in his saving grace. David knows this. In fact, one commentator put it this way. He says, the unfailing love of God is the basis of for forgiveness. I'll say that again. The unfailing love of God is the basis for forgiveness, and that is good news. But I, but I want to know, do you believe that this morning? Some of us don't know about God's great love. We think he's just out to get us. Some of us are there this morning, but he died for us, friends. He died for us, even though we were, Paul tells us, even though we were his enemies. Because when we sin, like David, who do we sin against? Look at verse 4. David says this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, when a sin is committed, 
there is a tendency to have a heart for justice. That's what happens with the whole cancel culture. We jump on the canceling bandwagon, taking up the offenses of others to let other people know just how virtuous we are. We see sin everywhere but in ourselves. But the truth is this. Every sin is against God. He is perfectly within his right to judge us, and he did judge it on the cross. Do you deeply understand God's unfailing love? Do you know God has a heart for mercy and forgiveness? Because it's only when we see God rightly that we can, secondly, reveal our inner secrets. When you're resting in God's character, then you can reveal your inner secrets. And that's where the rubber meets the road. All of us have pieces of our lives that we hide. In fact, right now, I guarantee that there is something in your life, some secret sin that nobody knows about. And we think it's not hurting anybody, but let me ask you a question. If it's not hurting anybody, why don't you reveal it? Is it because of shame or, or guilt or you're counting the consequences? Or do you think that God doesn't know? God knows. And he wants you to bring it into the light because all sin is bringing harm to your soul, friends. It keeps you from being transparent with others. God wants you to confess. But, but first you have to be honest with yourself. Like David, look at verse 3. He says, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Now notice what he's doing. He is understanding the depths of his sin. He's fixated upon it, but not in a, in a self-loathing way. Rather, he's, he's listening to his sin so that he can hear what it is telling him about himself. Do you know your sin? And is there genuine sorrow for it? In fact, some of us treat sin like it's not a big deal. But that doesn't lead to the transformation of a truly forgiven life. In that case, you're taking God's forgiveness for granted. Now, this came full focus for me when I was in geometry class in 10th grade. How many of you were, were just focused in geometry class in 10th grade? <clears throat> Learning the Pythagorean theorem and all, all the isosceles triangles and all of that. Um, in the middle of that, I was having a conversation with my friend Nick, and the topic of sin came up. Sin during the Pythagorean theorem. He, he was a nominal Christian, and he flippantly said to me, well, if you sin, God will just forgive you. And I said, well, that's true if you confess and you repent, but, but his point was that sin is not a big deal. And, and it's that attitude that never truly transforms your life. In fact, look at what Paul warns about in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, for the, the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, contrasting it, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. See, what he's saying is it's not enough just to reveal your secrets. There needs to be some sorrow for them because only deep and true repentance is what leads to life change. You need, you need a godly sorrow that understands the depths of our sin and that God hates that sin. Otherwise, nothing is going to change. Some of us will come and will say we're sorry, but we don't think we did anything wrong. We're just sorry that we got caught. The great Puritan writer John Owen captures the problem. He says, I do not understand how a man or a woman can be a true believer in whom sin is not the greatest burden, sorrow, and trouble. Does, does your sin move you to tears because it breaks the heart of God? Godly sorrow leads to true repentance and life change. David in this psalm shows genuine 
repentance. And then in verse 5, he tells us that he was born in sin. And then we get to verse 6, which is the, the crucial verse in this psalm. And he writes this, Behold, you, God, delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So this verse shows the deep impact sin has on our lives. If you want to live a truly forgiven life, if you want true transformation in your life, what he's saying is you got to dig deeper into your heart. you got to get to the secret place. Now I'm going to ask you a really personal question right now. Have you, when was the last time you were to that secret place in your heart? Have you ever been there? See, all of us have some kind of secret place that we're, we're holding off, that we're hiding from the world. And, and it's there that sin often causes the most destruction because it influences how we live our lives. So that phrase, inward being, refers to our interior life, the life of the heart. And it can literally be translated as our guts. Right? God wants to bring truth to bear on our inward being because sin is wreaking havoc. God wants to gut you, literally. In order to clean house, you need to understand what's going on inside. Dr. Michael Emlett wrote, a, wrote an article entitled, Understanding the Influences of the Human Heart. And in the article, he talks about different influences that bring pressure in our lives. He talks about intrapersonal um, influences, and that's kind of what happens in your body. So you might be experiencing pain or, or, or your body's breaking down. It's putting pressure on your heart. Then there's interpersonal influences, and that's what happens in your relationships. So things might be going on in relationships that are causing pressure. And then he talks about extra-personal influences. That's what's going on in society. And now you can't always control what's happening in your body or in relationships or in the world, but you can control your response to them which means you have to understand the inner life of the heart because from your heart flows your thoughts and your feelings. And ultimately, whatever is capturing your thoughts and your feelings, that's going to affect your actions. But people only see your actions. But underneath all that, it's your heart that's directing your life. Your thoughts and your feelings may not be believing the truth about God unless you let him into that secret place of your heart. One commentator said this, he said, God seeks to open, God seeks open access to those parts of our lives that we have chosen to keep deeply hidden with, uh, in our inner world. And too many of us stay on the surface. We don't go deep enough. Have you been to the secret place? Have you taken anybody there? Have you given it to God? Don't be afraid. He, he wants to bring forgiveness and healing and wisdom. And he wants you to understand the truth that the more you confess, the wiser you will get. Why? Did you read verse 6? He says, wisdom shows you the depths of your sin in your secret heart. He wants you to be honest with yourself. So, some of us are not being honest with ourselves. We, we've created a narrative based on what others say about us and that may not be accurate. David says the path to freedom, the path to the forgiven life is knowing who you truly are and then knowing that God can forgive you. Do you know that God knows you inside and out? Because God is not in the business of canceling you. He's already canceled your sin on the cross. Look at what Paul writes to the Colossians. He says, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He, he, he forgave all your sins. He, he what? He canceled the record of the charges against you and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Do you believe that? Some of us don't. But when you do, when you come to Jesus and give him your life, he unplugs your heart so living water can flow into it. 
So let, let me give you an image as we finish out this section. Uh, picture a dam with a ton of water behind it on the other side. God's grace and mercy are like a raging river of living water. But so many of us, this is what we do, so many of us put up a wall or a dam blocking that water. We don't want God in the secret places of our hearts because we're ashamed and we think he won't forgive us. We don't think his mercy is real. But I I want you to see this picture. I want you to see that when you're doing that, you're preventing God's liberating work in your heart. Confession of sin shatters the dam. It breaks the wall. It unplugs your heart so that the living water of the gospel can flow in. You have to break the dam. You have to let the water flow. Is living water flowing in the secret places of your heart? So if you want to live a forgiven life, first you need need personal reflection. You need to do some heart work. You have to know who you are. That first movement teaches us about ourselves, but the second calls us to action, surrender to divine transformation. And and this point is all about some Holy Spirit counseling. The the first point, we looked at confession of sin. Yes, you got to confess your sin, but a lot of people stop right there. No lasting change develops. You have to confront the question, do I really want to change? And honestly, many of us like the idea of change, but we want the quick and dirty approach. No effort on our part. I'll confess, I'll let you know what happened, but then there's nothing that happens afterwards. And and that points to another cultural message that can keep us from walking down the path of the forgiven life, and that is self-sufficiency, which Peter talked about last week. And here's the lie of that. We think that if we work harder, if we get more degrees, if we come up with a, a personal business plan, if we get our financial life in order, if we avoid alcohol and drugs and rock and roll, then my life is going to be better. Now, much of what I just mentioned are good endeavors, but should they be our ultimate goal? Will that behavior modification give you a better life? What would make your life better? My friend Jason Helveston says it this way. He says, Jesus did not come to give you a better life. He came to give you a new life. He didn't come to give you a better life. He came to give you a new life. And what he's getting at is this, that true transformation only happens when we surrender to Jesus and allow him to reorient our hearts completely. In fact, the cultural lie of self-sufficiency is keeping you right now from experiencing the freedom of forgiveness because you think it's all about you. David shows us the next stop on the path of forgiveness is surrender to divine transformation. True, lasting change is only something God can do. What does David say in verse 7? He says, purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, now that word purge, or other translations say cleanse, is a pointed word. It alludes to the cleansing of a leper, which was a horrific and, and contagious disease in the ancient world. In fact, the ritual cleanse involved hyssop, which was a medicinal herb in the ancient Near East. And what the priest would do was come and take the, take the hyssop and dip it in sacrificial blood and then sprinkle it on the leper to cleanse them. And the result, spiritually speaking, was that they were whiter than snow. Now, has anybody out there ever done a cleanse of your body? Right? If you have... It's intense, and if you haven't done it, I'll tell you, it's intense. (laughs) You typically drink some type of liquid, and it literally cleans you out from the inside, right? It's quite the experience. 
In fact, if you want to take the challenge, you could, you could take the Ultimate Cleanse with Nature's Secret or some other product that's out there on the market. And, and what it does is you drink this thing, you do it for a bit, it purges you, your body of all the toxins that you've been holding on to. And you know what? While you're undergoing that purge, you really don't feel very good. You feel terrible. You're starting to think, is this ever going to end? Why did I do this in the first place? Will the pain ever stop? That's what happens during a cleanse. And I think that's why most people don't do it. It's not easy. But in the end, when you're done, you say, I feel amazing. You're saying, why did I never do this before? Hallelujah, all the junk is out from the inside. The same thing is true with confession that leads to transformation. It's painful when you open up those secret places, but in the end, you feel whiter than snow. Because when we confess our sins to God and to each other, we are purging ourselves of the toxins in our heart. We're admitting that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the antidote. We need to drink the gospel every day. Commentator J.A. Moyer writes this. He says, to cleanse is to remove whatever hinders or disqualifies. So cleansing is just what is needed for the error that keeps us away from God. Do you want to change? You need to take the cleanse of God through daily confession because the toxins of sin have built up in your heart just like the food toxins in your gut. And you need to be washed. And washing, this is a work of God. It's not something we can do through our moral efforts, contrary to popular opinion. Look at Paul's words to Titus in Titus 3.5. He blows up this whole idea of American individual self-sufficiency. He says this, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we did, Right? We often think, well, if I'm more righteous, God will love me. No, he saved us because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth, a new life through the Holy Spirit. Let me review. Who saved us? God. Because of what we did? No. How are we saved? His mercy, his sheer grace. Who does the washing? The Holy Spirit who applies new life to our dead souls. Amen? Right, true forgiveness comes when we surrender to divine transformation, not self-help gurus. David affirms this is not in his power. In verse 8, he says, let the bones that you've broken rejoice. God, you did this. I need you. Then, because he was confronted by his sin, in verse 9, he pleads with God to blot out those transgressions. Then verse 10, which is the crux of the passage, David exclaims, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart. Focus on that word create. In fact, if you got a paper Bible, circle that word create. If you're using a digital one, highlight it and make a note. It's the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word for create here is bara, which is, which is a verb. Create is an action. It's the, it's the word that's used in Genesis 1 when God creates the world. And throughout the Bible, when this specific word is used, the subject is almost always God. God is the creator. And what's the result of his creative action? Something brand new. God is doing a new work in David's heart. Now, the word heart, as we discussed, refers to our choices and our thoughts. And a clean heart indicates that there's an undivided focus on God's will. I want you to pause. I want you to take in how powerful this one verse is. Because some of us in this room right now, or, or you're listening to this later on, you don't think this is possible. Some of you don't think you can change. And, and I get it. 
Right? I'm, I'm there sometimes too. Somebody confronts you about your sin, and what do you say? You say, oh, you don't understand. I've been this way for 30 years, for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years. This is just who I am. I can't change. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. What David is saying, no, what God is saying here, what he's showing you is this. You can change by the power of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. David is talking about total transformation from the inside out. Only God can do that. Do you believe that? And I know some of us don't, or you don't care. That's why, that's why you need to start with that personal reflection and see how devastating your sin is. Like David, you can change, and it's not just an instantaneous act. It's an ongoing process. Some of us, God has been working on for a long time. He's still working on your life. I want, you to, I want to invite you to pray that prayer in verse 10 together. Let's, let's just say this together. Lord, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Say it again. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. You keep praying that prayer. And as you pray, the Holy Spirit will work on your heart. And when he does, it's going to lead to some radical transparency in your life. There are two things you need to grow in the Christian life. You know that? Two things. Number one, you need the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Like, he, he, he accomplished it. Why? Because then you recognize that you can't save yourself. And then number two, you need the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because then you realize you can't grow yourself. You need God. Somebody out there say, I need God. Oh, my goodness. Somebody out there say, I need God. That's right. You need God. When God does this, he leads to radical transparency. And then look at how David finishes, verse 11 and 12. He says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold a, hold, uh, me with a willing spirit. See, David wants to be in the presence of God. Do you want that? That's where you, yeah, thank you. Amen. Kids are getting it. Come on, adults. Man. That's where you find security. That's when you, when you surrender at the foot of the cross. How do you live a forgiven life? You get to that place of radical transparency because God has, God has transformed your heart. That's the power of the gospel. Now, let's take just a moment here uh, to do an analysis of ourselves. What happens to people when they experience total transformation? I'm going to refer to two effects. And ask yourself, is this me? Number one, you're secure in Christ. People are secure in Christ. They're not defensive. They're, they're teachable. Why is that? Because my identity is based in Jesus' work, not me, the finished work of Christ on the cross. My salvation is not based on my efforts, but Jesus' effort. Who cares what people say about me? It matters what Jesus has done for me. Amen? Now, number two, you have a soft heart, and you're willing to receive correction. It's not about me because we desire God's work in our, in our lives. People with soft hearts are attuned to the work of the Holy Spirit, that indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. He convicts us of sin quickly. We repent faster. He, he directs us to the needs of others. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And people who have been transformed, they can be radically transparent because they're not trying to defend, they're not trying to hide, they're not trying to minimize. The dam has been shattered in their hearts and they've tasted the living water from the cross of Christ. That is a transformed life by the power of the gospel. 
How do you walk the path of the forgiven life? You practice personal reflection. You surrender to divine transformation. But the end of the path leads you to sing in genuine worship. That's where David finishes. Because when forgiveness is on the playlist of your life, it's different, right? Our hearts has been genuinely forgiven. We have experienced the mercy of God, and then thanksgiving flows from us. And that's the opposite of that, that cancel culture message. Now, at this point in the message, I would just ask you to reflect, is your heart more influenced by the message of culture or the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because in cancel culture, there's no singing, right? There's no message of forgiveness. There's no joy. There's only anger, right? There's no grace and gratitude. There's only power and getting what we think we're owed. Cancel culture is ultimately about putting ourselves in the place of God. The message of cancel culture hinders our worship and our playlist is filled with violent, angry rage music. Our culture is going to try to get us to worship something else, the rich, the powerful, the new thing. But when you've tasted the mercy of God, all you can do is worship him. Look at David's result, verse, verse 13. He says, then, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. That's the power of the forgiven life, worshiping our great God. We sing with joy, and people notice. You know what? I think people are done with cancel culture. Yeah, we're done with the shaming and the anger and the division. And, and I think the world, deep down, knows they want something different. Paul tells us, Romans 2, something's written on our hearts. When, when the world sees lives transformed by the gospel, when people can look at your own life and see a change, th then they know something's different. When, when people come to the waters of baptism, you know, we're going to do a baptism in the second service today. We're going to hear a testimony about the grace of God. That's power. When somebody looks at a person and says, I never thought that person would change, but then they did, all you can say is, that's God. And more people come to Christ. Because who you worship matters. J.A. Moyer, Moyer, again, gets it right. He says, who better to pass on the message of forgiveness than a real sinner who has himself been really forgiven, but whose humiliation in the process empties his words of all pomposity. What a word. Are you pompous out there today? Pomposity. And gives them a real cutting edge. What a great privilege does he now have than to tell others the good news? Who, who better to tell somebody about the forgiven life than somebody who's lived it? Are you living a forgiven life today? Because when you've experienced the gospel, you want to sing. What is David's song? Verse 14, he says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. See, our salvation should always open our mouths in praise. But it also produces a genuine humility in your heart. It changes our hearts and the way we worship. And what does God desire from us in worship? Look at verse 17. David says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Brokenness. And you say, that sounds counterintuitive. Is bro isn't brokenness a bad thing? Like, why would God want to break me more than I already am? But this is brokenness that leads to repentance of sin and genuine worship of God. It's the path of transformation. It forces us to confront our sinfulness and God's holiness. Brokenness shows our need for God. Have you ever been broken before the Lord? Have you allowed yourself to get to that place in the deep, secret places of your heart? That's where the Holy Spirit does his transformative work. Now, in just a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table, and I, and I want to encourage you 
to make today extra special. Ask God to come into those secret places of your heart and to break the pride and and the fear and the self-sufficiency and the secrecy. Ask the Holy Spirit to do his work today as we remember that living water flows from the cross of Christ. So so let's do an exercise. I want to ask you three questions, which I think lead us down the path of the forgiven life. Three questions. Ready? First question is this. Where are you hiding? That's the personal reflection part. Because the reason we don't engage in confession is because we're hiding something. We might be afraid what would happen if somebody found out. But God wants to come into that secret place and show you that he paid for that sin. He wants to bring you into the light and cleanse you. What's the Holy Spirit showing you? Where are you hiding? Second, what are you holding? That's the divine transformation part. Some of us have become so comfortable with our sin that we don't want to let go. It's what we know. But Jesus wants to come into that secret place and show you something better. What's the Holy Spirit showing you? Where are you where, what, what are you holding? And then third, what do you need to release? Because for some of us right today, there's a barrier between us and God. When we worship, right, the songs play and others around us are singing, but we're silent. And it's not because we can't sing. It's because something is holding us back and we need to release it to God. We need to open our mouth in praise. We need to remember, we need to believe the gospel again. What's the Holy Spirit showing you? What do you need to release? You see, the gospel is all about our Savior's sacrifice, that his body was broken for you and and for me so that we could then pour out praise to him and say, all glory to Christ. What are you hiding? What are you holding? What do you need to release? And all those questions lead you on that path of the forgiven life. So as the worship team comes back on stage for one song before the table, I'd like to end where David did. David ends Psalm 51 with a wider appeal to his people. And it's a reminder to us that forgiveness is not just a personal thing, it's a corporate activity. You know, cancel culture has been a group effort. Uh, The only way to change that is to make forgiveness a group effort as well. So look at what David says. He says, look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you'll be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit. And you say, what is he talking about? Well, to understand this, you have to understand a bit about the history of God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, right? If you read the Old Testament of the Bible, you remember that God chooses Abraham in Genesis 15 and says his descendants are going to be his people. And and he does that. He chooses them, and the people of Israel, they they multiply, and they even become a mighty nation in the ancient Near East. But but they're plagued by something over and over and over again. They, They always seem to forget God and run to idols, They disobey their God, and then they cry for help. They confess their sins, but then there's periods of time when they turn away completely. In fact, at one point, they're so far gone that they're conquered by the Babylonians, and they're carried off into captivity for centuries. But even though they're in captivity for centuries, even though it seems dark and bleak, even though they're out there, they think God has forgotten about them, but God never forgets his people. 
Eventually, he allows his people to return to their homeland, led by Ezra, who rebuilds the temple, and Nehemiah, who rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. And when Nehemiah, who we're going to study this fall, here's the, the series for the fall, he returns to the city, he looks at the city, and he weeps. He cries out to God for his people. He looks at the broken walls of Jerusalem, and he says, they need to be rebuilt and made new. And through Nehemiah's leadership, God does a new work. The walls are rebuilt like the broken and contrite heart of the psalmist. And after they're built, all God's people gather together and they pray. And this is what's recorded in Nehemiah 12. It says, many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day, for God had given the people cause for great joy. And listen to this. And the joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard far away. The joy of the people could be heard far away. And that same joy flows from the forgiven life that each of us can experience. Why? Because God's in the business of restoration. Do you want that today, church? Do you want to live a forgiven life? Practice personal reflection, surrender to divine transformation, and then you sing in genuine worship. Because our confession cleans out and rebuilds the walls of our soul. That's the song of the forgiven life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your mercy, Lord God. Thank you that when we confess, we can come to you and sing of your grace and your joy. Lord, today may our prayer be creating us something new, Lord God. Would you do a new work in our lives, Lord God, reminding us of what you did on the cross for us, the finished work. Holy Spirit, would you come and bring conviction and would you clean us from the inside out that we would give you glory. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.